Peter Malouk, good to have you back on the show again. Um, this is probably the one episode I've been looking forward to the most because I have so many questions. And if Bolden and I have questions, that means the average uh, dentist out there is uh, also confused. We have so many new inputs going to our economy. Um, it depends on what channel you subscribe to. You can see either the sky's falling or this is the best time ever. And uh, we always look to you to be a rational and um, very intelligent presence when it comes to uh, the future and for the economy and for our own personal savings. So just really happy that you took time out of your busy schedule to be here. Good to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me. So, so real, so real quick, if you don't mind, I want to jump into the, um, you know, the, right now, uh, I don't know how things are going on your end, but in the world of dentistry, at least the dentists that we're talking to, we're having record months. And um, the, the default question, uh, default statement I ever say to that is, you know, when you print $4 trillion, it has to go somewhere. Um, so yeah, my friends who own car dealerships and my friends who are home builders and the guys that sell Ferraris and boats and it doesn't matter what you fishing what guides. You, I tried to fishing. get a fishing guide the other day. <laughs> nope. Nope. We can't see it till August. Sorry. Yeah. Right. So we can't get anybody to call us back and, and businesses are booming. And of course, when biz, when the dentist businesses are booming, we think we're geniuses. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's <laughs> that we have a lot of money floating around. Can you give me the macro on what you believe is going on right now and what you believe is going to would then be the normalizing effects of that if you were. So pretty much everything, Greg, right? Yeah, everything. <laughs> Just let, 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 let Bolden and I shut the hell up and let, let, be, let the smart person start talking. So, uh, well, I mean, you've, you've laid it out pretty well. Everything's booming. And then there are obviously certain things that are booming even more. Um, so I'll just start with a pretty simple example. You know, if you've got a kid that has a lemonade stand and they're selling lemonade for a quarter and there's 10, 10 people in the neighborhood that have a quarter, you're going to sell the lemonade for a quarter. If you give everybody in the neighborhood an extra quarter, you know, the lemonade is going to sell for more, right? Mm. The, the federal government has come and put 4 trillion. People really get worked up on where it went. And really for economic purposes, it, it doesn't matter that much. They could have just taken a helicopter and flown over every town in America and dropped the 4 trillion. And we'd have basically the same general outcome we have today, which is more dollars chasing the same stuff, right? The stuff didn't change. Just everyone's got more money. Now, corporations got you know, the corporate bailout, private businesses got forgivable loans, and everybody else got stimulus checks. I mean, everybody has more money chasing the same kid with the, the lemonade stand. Mm-hmm. So this is that's part of the story. Uh, and that's going to cause inflation. That's going to cause prices to go up. The second part of the story is transitory inflation, which is inflation that comes and goes. So, for example, when the pipeline uh, got hacked by the Russians and oil prices went up, that's transitory. We knew it would go up for a little while and then it would come uh, uh, would come back down. When there was the, the ship that got caught in the Suez Canal backing up trade, we knew prices of certain things were going to go up. That was transitory. So we have certain parts of this boom are being fed, like housing, because there's more money chasing the same houses. You can't just build a bunch of houses overnight. And interest rates were lowered at the same time. So not only is there more money chasing those houses, but it's easier to pay more for a house because the monthly payment is so low. Mm-hmm. So that part is a transitory part. Interest rates won't stay low for forever. Everyone won't have this flood of cash for forever. And is that a supply chain thing too? Sorry to interrupt, but is that like yep. a supply? Okay. Yeah. Like the lumber. Right. 
Lumber. Yeah. I, I taught some people building houses. They said there's a lumber, lumber prices are through the roof, but the suppliers have the lumber. It's just the logistics. It's like, I guess you shut down the economy for a while, right? That's right. So that's part of the transitory piece is you, you want, we had a client that, that is in the t-shirt business. And he said, it's just going to take a while to get their containers back from China because they didn't do anything during the pandemic. And so mm-hmm. their t-shirts are backed up and you can do this across the board. So part of this is the supply chain getting working. You can't shut everything down and then flip a switch and mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't go to zero. And now we're going to do double what we did before. So part of this is transitory because of supply chain issues and sudden demand, uh, pent up demand. And part of this is more permanent because there's $4 trillion out there. At the same time, you know, not to add a conspiracy theory to it, but a lot of people say, oh, well, the Fed wants to create inflation. Yes, the Fed does want to create inflation. Actually, the, the Fed's stated objective, the reason the Fed exists is to create modest inflation and create full employment. That's literally why the Federal Reserve exists. So they are manipulating the economy. People say, oh, they manipulate the economy to try to make prices go up. Well, yeah, that's what they do. Uh, they don't want inflation. They want inflation. Now, let's think about the federal government here. We saw Trump pour money in. We saw Biden pour money in. Why would they do that? Let's pretend the federal government only owned one asset. And that asset was a house. And it's a million dollar house, really nice house. But we keep borrowing against it and borrowing against it and borrowing against it and passing the mortgage to the next generation. So now we've got a million dollar house with a million five of debt. Mm. All of a sudden doesn't look so good, right? People aren't feeling great about this asset to liability ratio. No one's got confidence. People worry about stability. How do you get out of that? One is you can control your spending. Well, we're apparently not capable of that. <laughs> Second, you can raise taxes. Well, I mean, you can't raise them enough to overcome that. Third thing you can do is you can inflate the value of the house. You can magically make the house be not worth a million dollars, but worth a million six. How do you do that? One, you give everybody in the neighborhood money so they can chase the same house. You've got more people with more money. They can pay more for that house, right? If the house is worth a million dollars and you give everybody a ton of money, the house is now worth more than a million dollars because we've got more people chasing that lemonade, right? The second thing we can do is we can say, hey, not only are we going to give you more money, we're going to lower interest rates. So it's going to cost you 8000 a month to buy that million-dollar house before. But by the way, for 8000 a month, it can, for, it can now be a million and a half because rates are lower. Your monthly payment is so much lower. So I can now pay a lot more for that house because I have more money and the interest rate is lower. So my monthly payment can be the same as a million dollar house on a million and a half dollar house because the interest rate's lower. So by lowering rates and giving everybody money, we now still have that same million and a half dollar debt, but we've inflated the value of the house from a million to a million six. So all of a sudden everyone feels great. US government looks really good, right? We've got this big asset that's worth more than the liability. What really just happened there? What happened is we all feel great because we all have more money, but it can't buy what it bought before. Right. So we're all making a it's little relative. bit more. Yeah. We might be making 15% more, but the cost of the home went up 15%. And the cost of a, a burrito at Chipotle went up 15%. And that's why Alan Greenspan famously called inflation the hidden tax tax. The Federal Reserve works to create inflation because it diminishes the value of the dollars you already have. And that's how you get out of a debt problem. So, you know, Craig, if you have um you know, if you have $100,000, well, the $100,000 today is not going to buy what it bought five years ago. It's not even going to buy what it bought a year ago. Your dollars are worth less. When you go buy groceries or cars or whatever, that 100000 buys what five years ago it took, it took 120000 to buy. 
So the diminishing value of your dollar is no different than keeping everything stagnant, no inflation, no deflation. Um, it's the same as keeping everything stagnant and taking money away from taxing you. But you feel better when it goes, when you lose the value of the dollar to inflation. So it's like a crash course on what's happening now. Just part tell of this me is, yeah, part of this is supply chain, part of it's pent up demand. Uh, part of it is intentional by the federal government to create and manufacture inflation. Can you dumb it down one more level? Because Peter Bolden was nodding his head through a lot of this and a lot of it just went over my head and I really want to understand this. And I can't be only, the only one that doesn't understand this. So you said the federal government's, the Fed's purpose is to create modest inflation so that people, so get, help me understand that. Why does That's the federal, in their charter almost, right? So yeah, but, that, but tell me what is the spirit of what it wants to do? What's the result of inflation? Help me understand that. So if you think about the way we can manipulate the economy, one is you know, tax and spend. That's Congress's job. And then the second job is uh, more of a monetary policy, lowering interest rates, printing money, things like that. That's the Federal Reserve's job. So the Federal Reserve, the Congress tries to get the outcome they want through tax and spend. The Federal Reserve tries to get the outcome they want through monetary policy. Well, what do they want after a 9-11 or, a, or an 0809 crisis or a pandemic? They want to get people out spending again. So what do they do? They do things to create some inflation. Uh, and, and they want people spending again because then people feel good and they hire people. Everyone that owns a dental practice is probably hiring now. I yep, can't find anybody. Right. So we're trying to get to full employment and with modest inflation. Why do they want modest inflation? Because deflation is horrible. We're worried about inflation now, but what kills an economy is deflation. So if, if we look back at 08 or 09 crisis, a home value would go from a million to 900 to 800 to 700. Now, the problem is once that starts happening, no one buys anything. They go, well, I'm not paying 800 for this house because next month it'll be worth 750. And I'm not paying 750 because next month it'll be 700. And this could become a self-fulfilling prophecy and an economy can implode. Also, if you owe 30 trillion in debt and there's deflation and the value of everything goes down, well, the taxes on those things from income to houses go down too. How are you going to pay this debt if your income is going down, you can't do it. So you need some inflation. And they were worried about that, right, Peter, back in March of, of, of uh, it was in a deflationary environment back in COVID March, right? Absolutely. They were horrified. Yeah. So from 2008 to 2016, the federal government fought off deflation, finally got inflation, modest and very modest inflation. And then the pandemic, they go, oh, here we go again. So the first thing they want to do is drop money from the sky so that it wouldn't take like 08, 09. It wouldn't take uh, 10 years uh, to get out of the mess. They say, hey, look, let's just take the deficit from 26 trillion to 30 trillion, get everybody working. There'll be some inflation. We'll tax everybody's higher wages and we'll get out of the mess later that way. That's the theory versus high unemployment and deflation for right, a decade. Right. So, so I have a burning question. So getting back to what we we're talking about as the, you know, now they printed this money, can you speak on kind of the velocity of money? And now that we're in this scenario of how and explain velocity of money to me, how it, when it changes hands rapidly, right? Between all these people who are using it, that is another aggregator for inflation, right? Yeah. So I mean, banks, I mean, a lot of people think like banks have to have dollars to loan out the dollars, but banks are able to loan out a multitude of what they have on deposit, right? So if I give you guys a bunch of money and the Fed pours a bunch of money in the system and you go put some of it in the bank, the bank gets to loan out many multiples of that, right? So it has a magnifying effect within the economy. And then the other thing is spending against spending. Like if you believe there's going to be inflation, you will pay anything for something today. You'll pay 
800 for a house because you think next month it'll be 850 and the uh, month after that'll be 900. Um, you know, if you, you know, there were people that bought used cars three months ago that are selling them back to the dealerships for more today. So if you really believe there's going to be inflation, you want to buy commercial real estate, you want to buy stocks, you want to buy real at cars and planes and whatever, because you don't want to pay more for it six months from now. And so it feeds on itself as well. All right, new for 2021, we want to invite everyone listening to join us on our private network. It's free to join. Join the conversation at bulletproof.dental. You can even download it in the App Store. Just look for the Mighty Network app, and you can download it there. But just point your browser to bulletproof.dental and join and sign up and start collaborating on um, some of the ideas we discuss on the podcast. Um, there's content there to download and um, it's all designed to help grow and stimulate us together. Hope everyone has a great day. What do you think is the likely, I know I'm sure your crystal ball doesn't work as well as I think it right. does, but what do you see? I mean, cause your job, literally your job is to pro- try to as best as possible to prognosticate what's going to happen. What do you see happening over let's say the next two to five, two, three years? What what happens when you put the, these types of inputs into the system? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a feeling and I'll, I'll share what I think is going to happen, but I would say, I believe my job is not to prognosticate because I think prognosticating is generally worthless. So I'm going to give you my theory, but someone flies into the building tomorrow. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? So right. we're not an institution managing money for a place that's going to be around for 500 years. We're managing it for individuals and families. Right. So the way I look at it is the short term is unpredictable and we have to be honest about that. We can't predict what's going to happen a year from now. There could be a cyber attack, another pandemic, a terrorist event. All bets are off. Doesn't matter what the Fed does. Everyone's going to cocoon again, right? So a family needs to be prepared for that. A dentist needs to be prepared for that no matter what. And that's my job is that you pay for the next five years, no matter what you're covered. But for the long run, we got to do something different because the long run things work a different way, no matter what happens in the world. So I would consider that my job, know the client and meet, match the investments to their needs. But there are things that, that you impact a portfolio from day to day. So I'll tell you what I think is going to happen and how we would behave because of it. I do think there is some inflation is transitory. Like I don't think we're going to have 15% inflation every year because I think there is pent up demand. It will get worked out. It might get worked out over two years. It might get worked out over five, Okay, but it's going to get worked out. Like I think planes will be full and hotels will be full and casinos will be for a long time but it won't be for the next 30 years, right? There's some pent up, I'm going crazy demand that's gonna work itself out. That's the transitory part. Lumber prices will come down. Part of this is the cure for high prices is high prices. Like we look at the last couple of weeks, lumber's down 20%. You know, just eventually people go, I'm not building the house, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Second, we're gonna see some some higher inflation that sticks around um, because all this money that's spent. But there's one very big powerful force that's not really talked about in the news today that I think contains all this. And that's the, the this deflationary era that we're in. So deflation is when prices come down. And there are two very, very big global forces that are driving deflation. One is globalization. So if you're Nike, you used to make your shoes in the United States, then you go, well, wait, we're paying too much, we'll go to China and pay less. Then China, what happens in China? Everybody's coming out of poverty now. There's nobody willing to work for a quarter an hour anymore. So what do they do? They go to Vietnam. Vietnam's starting to get a little too expensive. Let's go to India and then let's go to Africa. So this globalization is keeping prices down. It's a very, very powerful force that impacts everything from your iPhone to what you put on the table. It's very hard for the Fed to fight that deflationary effect. The other 
tremendous deflationary effect that's new in, in the last few decades is this tech revolution. You know, the TV is better, but it costs less. The laptop is better, but it costs less. That's a technology is a very, very powerful deflationary force. So I think this combination of globalization and technology is going to keep inflation in check. We just become so smart and so efficient that that's a very, very powerful force. The Fed can manipulate over the short run, uh, but eventually, you know, there's some containment there. So what do I think is going to happen? High inflation in the short run, modest inflation over the long run. Uh, unpredictability in the short run, you have bonds to make sure you're covered. Long run, there is inflation. The Fed wants it. You should own stocks, real estate, things that appreciate an inflationary environment. And what would way, have to happen? What would have to happen? What would the ingredients have to happen for us to be like a hyper like a Weimar Germany kind of thing, like hyperinflation? Um, what would what what more ingredients would have to transpire? So what has to happen for this this whole scenario? People worry about the Venezuela or Greece or Germany. Right, that's in the headlines. That's what's yeah. like charging me. That's what I'm right. Where you need a and wheelbarrow and I go buy something at the grocery store. Right. If people lose confidence in the currency, that's that's when that happens. In other okay. words, forget about the whole. We don't believe that you have assets to back this up. We don't believe that you can tax people to get the money to back this up. So how did that happen in in Greece? Well, Greece doesn't really have any assets, right? They, they sell, they had historical sites and they sell tourism. I'm sure I've just made my Greek clients very, very mad, but they don't have like a huge energy reserve. They don't have a huge, you know, the United States has. Have you had, have you had tzatziki by the way, Peter? It's a wonderful spread. So just don't margin. Oh, I know. I just yeah. had it's a global it's asset. It's, it's probably very, it's high up there. Brand cache, kefteres. There's very a lot of Greek food that's really, really okay. Huge, go ahead. Huge, huge fan. I was just in, uh, near Tarpon Springs last week, and it was one of the best meals I've had in a long, a long time. So big Greek community there. Okay, sorry. So, go ahead. So what happens is uh, the United States has trillions and trillions. We have a bunch of land. We have a bunch of energy. We have actual stuff, right? So the United States had to sell stuff to pay the debt. It could. We also have the highest earning income force in the world. If we needed to tax people higher and collect some of that, we could. And we have a bank, a federal reserve that can create inflation that can help us mm-hmm. out of the statute. So we have a couple of tools in our toolkit, which is why everyone says, look, if I've got to have a piece of paper in my pocket that I can trust, I can use as a currency a decade or 20 years from now. Right now, everyone on earth, that's the dollar. Now there's a whole group that doesn't think that's going to work out. And that if we go from 30 trillion to 60 trillion, People won't trust the dollar anymore. Then they'll need a cryptocurrency or a, the euro or whatever. Um, but we are a, we are very different than these other places. Venezuela's issue was they had energy. Energy became worth nothing. How are you know what's backing their currency? Right? Is everything pegged to the to the oil? The, to petrol. the oil. Yeah. yeah. And so for for us, I mean, people look at it and go, well, there's much people in America make they're making money, right? And 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 big a lot of corporations in America that are making money. And America has a lot of uh, resource, natural resources and land and so on. So there are a lot of things backing up the dollar uh, that make people, that make us not think that there's going to be that 100%, 200%, 300% inflation. But of course, if you take everybody in America and you say everyone gets $30,000 a year, no matter what, and we're going to give everybody free healthcare and we're going to give free education, I'm not making a political thing, and you don't have any money collecting, right? You will further devalue the confidence. You know, people want to see that there's a way to pay for the, they don't, you know, the, the person looking at the dollar doesn't care what your programs are if there's money coming in. But if you have the programs and you don't have money coming in and there's no path, this debt just keeps going up trillions and trillions of dollars, 
Well, anything's possible. You know, people could lose confidence uh, in the dollar at that point. We've got a long way to go there. We're clearly heading in that direction. We're not doing anything to give anybody confidence that we're not heading in that direction, but it wouldn't take a dramatic change to get it fixed. Interesting. And by the way, I asked you that question about, you know, the two to three year horizon, because that's, that's the clickbait that I listen to. The reason why, you know, I guess YouTube's figured out the algorithm, what I like to watch and is feeding me more of the same crap, but um, you know, and, and Dennis always want to know that too. We always, we always, you know, overestimate what we can do in a year or two and underestimate the power of long-term steady savings. And everybody's looking for the quick hack. And that's why, that's why even my brain's going that way too. You know, I, you know, it's best to when you're looking at investment, just to kind of, you know, trust good people and let it go long term. But, um, you know, I'm in a panic, mode. like, you know, Peter and I were always going down a rabbit hole. What should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? How do we the melting ice cube of the US dollar? Right. <laughs> That's where we're yeah. going. <laughs> right. Peter does. Um, Bolden doesn't help with that, by the way. He's gone. He's hey, don't throw me out of the bus. <laughs> well, well, I mean, listen, you know, I, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll hit those topics later, but. Yeah. I mean, there's an easy solution to this. If you think that if you think that the dollar is going to be worth less, then every single ingredient in a Big Mac at McDonald's is going to cost more. And then what's McDonald's going to do? They've got to pass that cost on to the consumer. And so you're going to pay more for your Big Mac value meal. And what's going to happen to McDonald's stock price? It's going to reflect the increase in that price, right? If a dental practice makes 200000 a year, it's worth whatever. If it makes four hundred, it's worth more. Have you made any progress? No. You feel great because your practice has doubled, but it buys the same stuff it did when it was worth half the value. You're just keeping pace, right? You're keeping pace. So equity owners keep pace. And if you own real estate, if you own stocks in general, most of the time, over long periods of time, you will keep pace with inflation. So equity and assets are really the only hedge in this environment. Well, assets. Equity, yeah. equity and assets is what I said. Equity in assets, yes. No, equity and assets, meaning an asset, meaning your home, building, commercial, and then equity, meaning a piece of a business, whether it's a practice or stocks. Yeah, private equity, uh, public stock, private real estate, public real estate, commodities, the things that go into the Big Mac are all commodities. Uh, okay. They don't give income. They're taxed at a higher rate. I'm not a fan, but they also, as a group, keep, keep pace with inflation. I'd rather own things that are also making income, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, stocks, private equity, you know, private real estate, things like that. What gets crushed in an inflationary environment is cash, because obviously you hold a million dollars and everything doubles in price over five years. And your million dollars is now worth five hundred, right? Mm-hmm. You've done, you've lost money. And bonds, uh, if you're collecting a fixed three percent and everything goes up six percent, you know you're losing money. You're losing your ability to purchase things every year. So you really just want to have enough in bonds to if the if things go to hell in a handbasket, you can get through, right? That's what that's about. But the 10 year plus, it needs to, you need to be owning equity. Yeah, it's so funny how many people waste decades of just compiling cash because, like, this is not the right time. I'm so glad I didn't get in. Yeah. So glad I didn't get in 2000. I'm going to so pow- keep some dry powder dry on the powder. side. And there's so <laughs> many people saying that. Like, I listen to friends that are fairly affluent and intelligent. And they're like, my broker just told me this is not the time to buy. I'm like, really? Can yeah. you? How, I mean, how is this still common that people are like going through this crystal ball approach? Like, I'll tell you when it's the right time. I mean, yeah, well, I'll tell you a couple of different thoughts on that. So first of all, I mean, we work with a lot of centimillionaires, someone on the, on the Forbes list, I mean, a lot of very wealthy people. And as a group, they don't know anything more about investing than anyone else does. So I always laugh when I read, when I do an interview and someone says, well, what are the richest people are doing or 
or when I read in Forbes, what are the richest people doing? They don't know anything more than anybody else because most of those people were really good at one thing. Yeah, like software. Usually how they made their money. That, that's right. And it Details. usually wasn't. In, so, it, and, and here's the other thing that makes us all think there's a shortcut because if you work really hard as a dentist, you can be better than other dentists. Like you can actually be better, right? And it's the same thing. If you work really hard at basketball, you can be better at basketball. But if I work really hard at predicting the future, I will be no better at right. future investments. It doesn't Too many matter. variables. <laughs> so, you, but it doesn't sell. You know what I mean? It doesn't right, but sell. The, the common idea is that this, this, this skill that there's, there's this person out there, there's this financial yes. guru that right. is the LeBron of right. the financial. We all collectively believe that. Yep. Somehow. Like, like Warren Buffett at the bottom sold airline stocks. Right. right? Like, so there is that there is not that lebron you know really what you have to do is you really and passed have, on netflix didn't he <laughs> yeah, yeah you have to have the humility and you have to have um i think a little the 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 wisdom to say look certain things are not predictable no one can predict them i'm not going to find that and if that's the environment what should i do right that's not you know, super successful people they're trying to find that accountant that lawyer that whatever that has the edge those people exist but the market timer that has the edge does not exist. That's right. very so it's hard. It's paradoxical. To, it's hard for people to accept. Yeah, to get super successful, you have to be really good at predicting the future. So these super successful people have deep, specific knowledge in specific areas, yes. and that they made it by predicting the future. Now they get all this money. They go to a guy like you and be like, "Okay, yeah. what's the future?" And you're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> "That's not my job." So right. it's interesting. It's a very. Yeah. It's almost like you have to just pivot once you make the money. You have to say, "Okay, now." It's about steady, consistent, you know. Yeah, I mean, creative planning got, you know, to be, I think, the leader in, in the space because we predicted where we thought what people should have and where the market, what people deserved and what the market should demand. And now our competitors copy us. We're the leader in the space. But I don't believe that translates into me predicting where the stock market can go. In but fact, you did I, move to where the puck was, not where the puck was, you know? Like, well, yeah, I think the, for the, the business... Yeah. I think from a business standpoint, I mean, like this idea that there's this broker dealer that's going to tell you exactly what to buy and it's to get the, this really like almost like prognostication talent, yeah. you know, that, that, and the model and the, and the way that, uh, you know, unfortunately dentists were, were very often preyed upon um, the, 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 the worst of the financial services industry because we built relationships with people, we trust them. And it's incredible how many times I see smart people that are just like listening to this you know, guru advice from their financial person. And it's really disheartening to know that, that, that there's, you know, I guess yeah. it's all quite equal. Yeah. I think a lot of harm happens from people trying to time their way through things like this. And you saw the record outflows that were happening in March and April and the permanent damage that's caused by these exits and these crises and this waiting things out, like, like Peter Bolden was talking about, or people waiting on the sidelines, waiting for things to settle down. That's where the real damage as an investor happens. But they'll never know, uh, Peter Malik. They'll never know like what the true cost was because they won't do the math. They'll be right. like, "Thank God I got out March seventeenth," and they're not back in, by the way. So when they right, get back right. in now, it's beyond where it was at the crash. Yeah, there's confirmation bias to say like, "Oh, that was a good idea. I did that. I'm going to always do that." That's right. There's never a thing on your statement that says, "Here's what you missed." Here's the 38 percent right. you missed in that two months you were out. Like the truth in lending on a home mortgage. Like, how'd right. you stay it in? 
<laughs> so, so tell me, what do you think about like um, what's going to happen? Uh, the implications with long-term capital gains tax and and you know moving towards uh, a higher rate or, or closer to ordinary income. Are you believing that we're going to be taxed higher for long-term capital gains, or, or even touch on the possibility of unrealized gains, Peter? Do you think a taxable situation with that? Yeah, so let's talk about like where we are and what's being proposed first, just to level set for your audience that's busy doing other things than following the, the tax rates. So there's a lot of different taxes. So one is income tax, the highest rate, you know, over you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, the highest rate's 37% at the federal level, and then everyone pays their state tax. The capital gains rate um, is 20% for most people. You pay the federal government 20%, then you pay your state if you live in a state with a state income taxes as well. And the estate tax is basically anything over 11.7 million, 40% goes to the government. There's a lot of things you can do there. Most people are focused on income and capital gains taxes and Biden, uh, the Biden administration has proposed that they wanna basically take the capital gains rate and make it the same as the income tax rate for people that make over a million a year in, in adjusted gross income. So if you sell a business, boom, you're there, right? And so. That means that all that money over a certain amount is going to be taxed at 39.6%. So it's basically doubling it from where it is. You pay your state tax on top of that. If you live in California or New York, you're going to, you know, half or more of your income will go to the government. They've also proposed that that's retroactive. I can't remember when, but to a date that's already passed. And supposedly, (laughs) yeah, supposedly doing that so that, you know, they don't make an announcement, hey, we're going to do this January 1, and then every dentist in America sells their practice, you know, before the end of the year, and we wind mm-hmm. up in a deflationary environment, right? So they want to, they've proposed making it 39.6 retroactively so that people don't place all these trades. They've also proposed getting rid of what's called the step up in basis on death, meaning if you paid $100,000 for Apple stock and on your death, it's worth a million, whoever sells it after you die that inherited it would pay no capital gains tax. It's as if they paid a million for that stock. So if you had paid 100,000 for Apple stock today and it's worth a million and you sell it, you have 900,000 of capital gains, you'd pay 20%. Under the Biden plan, um, if you sell it while you're alive and you were making over a million, you'd pay 39.6%. And if on death, someone inherits it, they would not get the step up in basis. Their basis would be 100,000. They'd pay capital gains on the difference. Now, what I think is gonna happen is I think they will probably compromise on a capital gains rate that's not 39.6, maybe it'll be 28, maybe it'll be 30. I do think that the most likely outcome is it will not wait until January 1, that they will have a date well before January 1 that prevents business owners and real estate owners from selling prior and locking in the lower capital gain rate, right? So if the capital rate gain rate goes from 20 to 30, there's a lot of dentists that might you say- mean that you know they'll what? arbitrarily pick something that happened in the past? They might say it's August 1, so that you don't have time to go sell your business between now and then. Um, but they're not going to wait till January 1. This is my guess. Right? Okay. All so right. no one knows what's going to happen. It could be, right. it could be nothing happens. It could be, it could be everything changes January 1 and it really is 39.6. It could be what's proposed today. If I were betting, I would bet it's 28, 30% capital gain sometime with a date between now and the end of the year that prevents business owners, real estate folks from selling. I would bet that we are going to see the highest income tax rate go to 39.6. I would bet that not in this tax bill, but in a future one, we'll see the estate taxes go way, way up for people that are particularly wealthy. Um, but I think they'll do that in the future. Is that good for um, is that good for the long-term viability of our economy and our country, in your so opinion? Depends, 
it, it depends on your economic theory. So there's no question, there's just no question that the tax code is is inequitable in some instances. So if you look at the really between not the rich and everyone else. So when we talk about the rich and we say it's somebody with two million dollars, those that group, in my opinion, they're paying what they're supposed to be paying. I, I don't think we should be going crazy raising the tax rate of a family making 200,000 a year that's worth $2 million. These are not the people, this is small business. Right, we're conflating those millionaire billionaires. Like that's- We have to separate this 50 million, 100 million and up. But the reality is the guy with a hundred million dollars, it doesn't matter what his income is or her income is. They don't care if you tax it a hundred percent. You know, they're making a couple hundred thousand million a year. All they care about is the capital gains rate. So people worth a hundred million dollars, they own businesses and real estate. And they aren't selling. Okay, so most of the time they're paying very, very little taxes. They're just paying the taxes on the income that that generates. Whereas if you got somebody who's, you know, running a small business and making five hundred thousand a year and working eighty hours a week and making the economy go, well, that five hundred thousand, if the government takes three hundred thousand of it, that's a big deal. You know, that's going to disincentivize that person from doing that. So I would, you know, this is personal opinion. I would separate those groups. Right. But the reality is in a lot of America, someone with 100, worth $100 million is walking past a lot of people on the way to their desk that are paying more in taxes than they are. Well, yeah, I've, I've met so, those people. Yeah. So we need to separate. I mean, this discussion, we say the top 1% everyone else. I don't, we got to get away from that. It's really got to be saying the top one quarter of 1% and everybody else. Because there's this very, very big gap that happens there. We, we always talk about Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and then we talk like they're the top 1%. They're not the top 1%. The top one percent is the average dentist. Yeah. Right? So I think like we got to be talking about a different category, and I think we'd have a much healthier dialogue as as a country if we did that. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, even when I, I don't remember which politician it was or what administration, but it's this idea of millionaires and billionaires, and this the you get to conflate those two into one category. Yeah, yeah I mean uh, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So no, now it's five thirty eight is annual to be a top one percent earner. Uh, yeah. According to July 2020, it was 538. So yeah, a lot of the dentists are definitely top two. All of us are top two percent because yeah. the top two is probably 150. Right. You know. And are they, if, these aren't the people that we should really be like politically, you know, in my opinion, you know, going after. I think what they're they're the language would indicate be going out after a different group of people, and hopefully the policy, you know, whatever they come up with matches matches up with that in a reasonable way. Essentially, it's look, if you were to equate from an analogy, if the U.S. was a company, right, the way that the way that that company makes money is only one way. That's tax revenue. Right. And so right now, if you were to look at that in a balance sheet, you'd be like, wow, this company has been in the red for a long time. And the debt service, like the tax basis doesn't even cover the tax income, doesn't even cover the debt service. So isn't there an inflection point when you're like, holy shit, we could be screwed yeah. or no? Is the only solution just to try to mitigate that by raising the tax income? You you cut the spending a little bit. Yeah, wants to do, <laughs> or doesn't seem raise, to be happening. Or you raise taxes a little bit, or you create inflation. Or you create inflation. Okay, all right. You, and you and you touched on all of that. I would just you know yeah. just looking at it from a from a very simplistic view. Like, hmm, if if this was a dental practice, it wouldn't be in business that long. Right. right. We would have been out of business because it's just how long can you go negative, 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 kicking right. the can down the road. Yeah. At some point, someone's going to call that debt. 
That's right. Well, it's also related to our political system as well. As long as you're during your tenure as a leader, you can point that you made it better. You can point it to the next guy or gal that screwed it all up. Yeah, I mean, the Russians, you know, during the, the revolution in the early 1900s, they had a saying um, that, that uh, Great Britain would expand itself out of existence, Germany would militarize itself out of existence, the United States would spend itself out of existence. So they, <laughs> they, they didn't come up with their own demise, which obviously happened along the way, but they had thought that democracy is what would hurt capitalism because there's no incentive for politicians to do anything but kick the can down the road. So you don't solve it until it really is a crisis because then the politician can get reelected by getting you out of the crisis. And the question is, will that inflection point happen where not too late, right? Where there's, where people go save us. And the, because the person who's going to save it, you is going to have to be someone who changes social security, for example, like social security pays out when it started uh, under FDR, it started at the end of, at the beginning of where life expectancy was, right? Well, now we get it in our six, at 66, 67 life expectancies in the eighties. Yep. So to fix that, someone's got to, change it. They've got to make it where it starts later. And then if you make a certain amount of money, you get less and so on. Well, you're immediately going to get voted out if you do that, unless people believe it won't exist unless you save it. Right. So that's the that's the problem and, and the benefit of democracy. The problem is you kick the can down the road. The benefit is there is an incentive to solve it at some point, which is why we tend to figure stuff out at the 11th hour all the time in the United States. Yeah. Like you, you look at uh, the Roman Empire and those parallels, um, you know, of how these these democracies evolve over time. And, you know, the Romans were concerned about, you know, bread, the senators would always say, as long as the people have bread and circus, they won't, they won't care. Like it's this, I I think of, you know, do you believe um, in any of those headlines that are saying that, you know, this is the beginning of the decline of America or do you, do you, do you ever, you know, entertain those thoughts? So I don't think we're going to decline. I think like our kids and grandkids will be, live better lives than we did. I'm not in the camp that we've peaked or any, I don't believe any of that. Okay, I do right. think, I do think that our position as the world leader, the world superpower is at risk to China. Now think about the transition from the United Kingdom to us. People living in the United Kingdom today, their stock market's up hundred percent over the last 10 years. Their kids, the people living today are better off than they were when they were the superpower 50 years ago. So you don't have to be number one for, I mean, if we're not number one, it doesn't mean life's not good and our kids and grandkids don't live better lives. We don't have more money and all of that. But do I think we're the position as a, as the global superpowers at risk? Absolutely. Uh, I do. Uh, Wait, the UK think- was it? the UK was a, the super, the superpower oh, 50 yes. years ago, no, 50 no, no, years no. ago. Well, I don't mean so after World World War II was the transition, I think. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's call it 80, whatever, 80, 80 years. The problem is, Peter, we're all getting older. So right. like, we, we 50 years ago, it sounds like, whoa, that seems like so little time. Yeah, it's like 1980 <laughs> was 42 years ago. Wait, wait, wait. No I thought chance. 80 was like five years ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, E.T. came out like five years ago. Didn't right. Yeah. Well, Peter, we're really excited to have you. I know you're speaking on stage at the summit. And, um, you know, I think this is something that dentists are really need to hear. And I I think something that's important about creative planning and now dental financial freedom, which you guys carved an arm off of creative planning for the benefit of dentists is we like to have things kind of all in one place. And you talked about so much here, like, you know, you talked about the estate planning with the death death tax, and then there's obviously investment services, which you guys offer. But I think what's attractive to me is just the suite of just management, whether it's private wealth management, you know, tailored tax service, 
you know, all the things, estate planning, all these things are just, we want to be dentists, right? And I think to have something under one roof with a fiduciary, like you guys are, is just such a service to uh, our fellow dentists. And I just thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate that. I appreciate your guys' support over the years. And, and, uh, you know, we finally just, we're working with so many dentists that we did carve out that specialty practice and it's gone, you know, incredibly well. I'm looking forward to speaking to your event here in Austin too. And people can like log on to so go to dentalfinancialfreedom.com as the, the site. And you can actually request and start talking to, um, you know, creative planning and start getting some stuff set up. Cause it'd be nice. But I mean, obviously we'll talk about that at the summit as well, but you know, I just think it's, there, there's so little services that are geared for dentists and everything as Craig always talks about is so predatory in our environment, unfortunately, because, you know, we are a trusting people and B we want to do our craft and let other people, you know, and unfortunately we get preyed upon. And so I just, yeah, I did personally just want to thank you for being yeah. um, a, a, one of the good guys in our, in our field. I appreciate that. And also, you know, it's funny is a lot of times I would, uh, before I um, knew about you guys, I would just be on calls and be like, how is this, this disjointed that I have to literally, uh, they're like, well, make sure you ask your accountant that I'm like, I don't even know. Yeah. You're literally monkey in the middle. You're like monkey in the middle. You're the proxy between all conversations, which sucks. Like, can you email that to me? Cause I don't even know what you just asked me to ask him. But you have to be the intermediary, which is like, you don't want to do that. You just want the people to talk to the people, right? right? Like. Can, can I get you guys all in a room together yeah, and talk? But no, nope, no, nope. no, we can't do that. No, no, no. Just, <laughs> I agree with yeah. you, Greg. That was a big frustration prior in my prior life as well. Yeah, it's incredible. So anyway, uh, Peter, anything in closing that uh, that you don't think you'll cover at the summit that uh, that you think all of our all of our peeps should know? You know, I think if if they're I, I, we covered so much macroeconomic and microeconomic, mm-hmm. you know, policy. I think if if you're just a listener, you go, what the heck do I do? Just make sure. But you got stuff in a safe place that if you know the world goes to hell in a handbasket, we can meet your needs for five. You can meet your needs for five years, and after that, be in, be invested in things that grow. You know, stocks, uh, publicly traded real estate, very stuff that's very easy to buy. Stay diversified; it'll work out for you over the long run. And just keep the noise out of your life. Excellent advice. Excellent. Yeah, for those of you who have not heard Peter speak live, and I've, I've heard you at you know several events. I am just so excited for you to have this venue with dentists. I mean, our profession is, like we said, filled with people who value relationships, do the right thing for other people. And it hurts my heart that in turn, they're meeting with predatory um, people oftentimes. So um, I would say that, and I say this very often now, I would say that if you ignore what Peter and I have to say on stage and just show up for what Peter Malouk has to say, that would be a return on your investment just alone, just that. Like, and the way you take these complex ideas and break them down is, is simply brilliant, Peter. You're brilliant at taking complex things and making them digestible. And, and we are so confused. And I think there's an intentionality on confusing people like us. So like the, the ways that you talk about entering the market and time in the market versus time in the market, I can't wait for our dental colleagues to hear this stuff. I, I really appreciate that. Look forward to seeing you guys really soon here. We know it might be your smallest stage that you've been on it. You know, it's only going to be 300 people. I think when I first exposed you, I was at Tony Robbins Business Mastery and, you know, much bigger audience there. It was but, only uh, like 10,000. It's not, yeah. not, much <laughs> not much different. Not much different. So we appreciate you leaning in once again. So anyway, excited to see you, Peter, in person. I'm excited to see everybody in person these days, honestly. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> but you especially, but you especially. <laughs> um, yeah, and we will uh, we will see you soon, pal. 
All right. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you for being here.